Hello, Sublation Media viewers and uh, future readers. It's me again, Douglas Lane. And what you're about to watch is a conversation with Elijah Emery on the topic of Christopher Lash um, and uh, his impact on the left and the, his significance today. After that, if you'd like to go over to our Patreon, uh, you'll be able to watch an old um, archived interview with Dennis Kramer that was recorded right around the time of the uh, in Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, I didn't release it uh, back then uh, for a variety of reasons, one of which was just that I got caught up uh, in a schedule of uh, releasing videos that, that weren't on the topic of Ukraine. Um, I kept meaning to release it, but um, since then, since that was recorded, I have uh, kind of shifted my position on the invasion and most importantly on the U.S. support uh, for the Ukraine uh, struggle. Um, so, but it's of interest probably to take a look at uh, what the early thinking was between uh, Dennis and I and what we, what we said back then. Um, so that will be available on Patreon. Tomorrow there will be a new Critical Cuts video released on the topic of uh, Ukraine and Zizek and Jordan Peterson. It's going to be entitled uh, From the Culture War to a New Cold War. Something like that will be the title. Um, I've also started solving this Rubik's Cube again. There was a time when I was over at Zero Books where I started every Critical Cuts video with a clip of me solving um, a Rubik's Cube. And then I forgot the algorithms uh, for a variety of reasons, probably. Uh, both psychological and mental. In other words, I'm getting older, I guess, so I forget things. But um, I've relearned the algorithms for this. And here, I'm going to solve this for you real quick right now. All right, enjoy the video. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we, we still, them. to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. Elijah Emery, uh, you are a, a, a new contributor to Sublation. You're I a, am? It's very right. exciting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be writing essays for a channel that will be released or launched, I think, in August, probably, July or August. We're going to be making explainer videos, kind of entry-level explainer videos, and you're going to be writing the scripts for some of them. So I'm very grateful for your work. Um, but you are also uh, 
working on your PhD or just finished your PhD? I'm, no, I'm not a PhD student. I am. I'm doing undergrad. So it's my undergrad. Oh, you're an undergrad. Oh gosh. I'm. Well, never mind then. Goodbye, Elijah. No. Okay. <laughs> no. 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 But you I'm, had a dissertation though for your uh, right or something like it's, that. It's my thesis. It's it's thesis, a, yeah. a senior honors thesis for my last year in the labor relations school at Cornell. Cool. Um, so, you know, I'm not an academic, so you could have just completely told me, oh, yeah, I've got a PhD or whatever you wanted. You could have made up a degree. Uh, you know, I would have barely noticed. Um, so, yeah, no, that's great. So you have a thesis that you wrote, and it was touched upon some of the ideas of Christopher Lash. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Go ahead. Explain so, what your thesis was. Defend so it. Basically, it's, it's currently in progress. Um, so maybe, you know, I'm, I'm playing myself off as, I don't know, somebody who's like done something. No, I've just like read a bunch of books and like, hopefully kind of understand them. Um, but there's this concept that Lash expressed in an interview in the 1980s on the role of the social critic. And he talked about how the social critic essentially holds up a mirror to the world from a particular, um, you know, cultural artifacts, a particular situation, and utilizes this to tell a broader story about how society functions. Mm -hmm. um, and from that, you know, I got interested in Chris Lash a little bit before I found uh, your work, first on Zero and then in Sublation. But a lot mm -hmm. of you sped me along, and um, continuing to be interested. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm I'm I want to do is use Christopher Lash as a mirror to tell a story about the history of liberalism in the 20th century, uh, the shift from an authoritative mode of social control uh, that characterized a prior epic of bourgeois liberalism to a therapeutic mode of social control and the ramifications of that for both the possibility of organization on the left and uh, how capitalist relations organize themselves in general. Tell me about the disciplinary uh, epoch. The the what what kinds of institutions and programs and policies were in place when liberalism was more directly disciplining uh, the working class yeah. as a mechanism of social control. So this is this is a period which is characterized by the advent of the, the uh, factory system mm. and the shift from handicraft production to forms of production where workers are concentrated in one place. Mm -hmm. um, I think Lash, obviously, um, you know, a couple of people on various podcasts you've hosted have mentioned that political economy is not one of his strengths. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, accounting for that, it's still worth recognizing that even if I don't agree with him, that the factory system was exclusively a means of solidifying social control rather than something that generally increased productivity. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an important part of it. And increasingly the world of work um, seeded control of technical knowledge from workers to uh, managers and bosses more generally. Uh, and technical knowledge was utilized and disseminated within a factory system. So the authoritative mode of social control is um, you know, basically, it's it's the period roughly from 1870 to 1920. It's the it's laying the groundwork for Fordism, 
uh, it is characterized by uh, a lot of the conditions that Marx wrote about in his later period. Mm-hmm. Um, it you can see the the forerunners of this in Engels's condition of the working class in England. You know, mm-hmm. it's a really brutal system that um, exploits very directly. Um, it utilizes violence on the behalf of bosses and on behalf of the state uh, in order to push up, you know, profits. Um, Right. So like an example of the kind of authoritative control that uh, the capitalist class uh, would implement against the working class would be like strike breakers or. or Yeah, exactly. Like the Pinkertons are a great example of this. Mm -hmm. Um, The Battle of Blair Mountain in the United States uh, was, do you know what that is? Mm-hmm. Um, I, but remind me though. I will absolutely. It's, it was like, um, the first time actually airplanes were used in like military combat. Uh, and it was on behalf of the government to break a coal strike, uh, mm-hmm. in the early 1900s, um, where, you know, there's out and out violence between workers and, uh, factory owners and the government intervening on behalf of factory owners. Uh, yeah, I, I knew it was a, uh, I, you know, you asked me if I knew what that was, and I just thought, yeah, it was a, a strike that was broken up. And then I realized, well, that you probably got that from the context of the conversation, Doug. So I don't think I knew what that was at <laughs> well, all. No, it's, I'll I confess. Mean, it, it's, it's, for me, it's, it's great because it encapsulates this, you know, prior mode of like, you have this out and out class conflict, obviously, within the capitalist system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, class conflict bubbles, it rises, it manifests itself in certain ways. And so what you have to do is you either have to ameliorate it so that it doesn't bubble up. This is basically the therapeutic system, which replaced the authoritative system, Mm -hmm. or you can just like kill a bunch of workers, which is much less efficient, but does the same thing in terms of maintaining capitalist hegemony. So um, the, did something change in the way in which workers were organized in order to make the therapeutic approach more tenable? Or was it just something that, that the capitalist class um, arrived at um, as a better method of control within the factory system? So this is, uh, there's a, there's a couple of, you know, there's a purposeful element and there's a more unconscious element uh, Mm -hmm. and they work in tandem. Um, one thing that happened was that the helping professions, uh, mm-hmm. you know, medical professionals, uh, social workers, uh, psychiatrists, um, mm-hmm. all collaborated uh, with, you know, rationalizing agencies of government um, in order to upend traditional family relations, basically, mm-hmm. uh, to act as agents in socialization. Um and what this did is this instilled, according to Lash, from you know the beginning of a person's life that they would participate in this, uh, you know, in in the system basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and this would happen not in the level at the level of the factory or at the level of work, but uh, maybe through education. Through education is a perfect example. Through the mm-hmm. family, uh, Lash has in Haven in a Heartless World. He talks about how the invasion of the family by the helping professions in tandem with the state and corporations socialized reproduction in the same way that the factory system had socialized production, Mm -hmm. uh, removing these from being arenas of individual 
private control to, um, you know, certainly under the influence of private property, but under public management in some way or another, or social management, I should say. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is one reason why the therapeutic shift occurred. Um, It was deemed better by people committed to the process of progressive rationalization and regulation. uh, And they, over time, conducted, uh, you know, public policy in a manner that promoted this type of socialization process. When these people were implementing this process of socialization and the invasion of the family, were they thinking of it in terms of uh, creating quiescence amongst the working class to stop the the organization of labor and around unions and strikes and so forth? Or were they thinking of it as addressing social problems? Both. Both. So there's, you know, the, I mean, one thing which you can really learn from the history of liberalism in the 20th century is one reason it has such significant staying power is because it's able to capture elements of radical critique, incorporate mm-hmm. it into its system of management, mm-hmm. and then maintain the basic underlying structure. And so in this way, you know, the the, the acquiescence to some form of unionism um led the labor movement away from more radical critiques about how work should be organized and in Mm -hmm. favor of higher wages and maybe better control, better conditions within the capitalist system. Mm -hmm. Um, But then on the other hand, there are real social problems which need to be addressed by any system of government. So a Mm -hmm. great example of this is meatpacking, which is Mm -hmm. this famous example uh, in in the jungle of capitalists, you know, greed run awry, basically, where mm. it's like you're producing disgusting meat. No government like wants disgusting meat being sold. This is just like a bad social problem. Mm-hmm. And so you have a couple of ways to address this. Uh, you can um, eliminate meat consumption in society. This is one way. You just make this not a problem. You can uh, place workers in greater control of the meat production process because they're going to be eating the meat and they obviously don't want to eat like rats mixed with pork or something. This is bad. Mm-hmm. And then another form of, of solving this problem is the one that the American government took and most other governments did, which is the implementation of a regulatory state to ensure that the underlying structure of business is maintained, but that it's pushed in particular social ends. Um, mm-hmm. And what this has the effect of doing is making the regulatory state part of the production process, influencing it in some way and solving this problem, but at the same time, precluding more radical solutions. Mm -hmm. Like giving the workers more control over the workplace so that they can create. Absolutely. Yeah, precisely. Mm -hmm. Um, Um, Okay. So um, that, and this is all the therapeutic approach. These are, these are all the underlying elements of the therapeutic approach. And the therapeutic approach, according to Lash, is what leads to his famous analysis of the shift in the culture from a culture of acquisitive individualism to a culture of narcissism, um, which he sees as an outgrowth of the prior culture of acquisitive individualism, like the bourgeois period in American capitalism uh, of 1870 to 1920. And the therapeutic approach changes the way socialization occurs to make the culture of narcissism the dominant culture in American life. So 
this is now this is like a conceptual jump. Um, right. And this is the kind of thing I'm really interested in. How is it that the early lash, who's talking about um, this regulatory process, agencies of social control, makes out of these conclusions the the logical jump to something like the culture of narcissism? Um, yeah. Um, what would okay? So let me just see if I can conceive of the connection between these two things. The um, the culture of narcissism would be a way in which people, not just working people, but broadly the entire culture of, you know, the entire society conceived of itself, the way people conceived of themselves in relationship to the world yes. uh, and what their, what their aims would be as individuals in society. And that con- self-conception and aim change due to, the changing uh, mechanisms of control from the state. Yeah, um, and, and and not only the state, but also corporate capitalism, the organization of uh, capitalism into large organizations, uh, mm-hmm. rather than you know small household production. The the, 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 the uh, uh, rising up of monopoly power within the monopoly power sector. of of consumption uh, of consumer capitalism rather than producer capitalism. All of these things which demanded the change in the mechanism of, of, of state influence that I was discussing earlier. So what's the difference between producer capitalism and consumer capitalism uh, as you understand it, just to clarify so that. Th- okay. So this is, um, it's the, why are you producing commodities, right? Mm. Um, in producer capitalism, you're producing commodities for reinvestment usually in consumer capitalism, the main purpose of producing commodities is for exchange. It's for sale. Um, obviously, you know, these are really intertwined and it's hard to say, oh, you know, this ended at this time and this ended at this time. Well, OK, I want to like point out that um, when a, if you're if you're producing for reinvestment, you're also producing for sale. Yeah, that's the that's capitalist sectors d- divided up into sectors. And so the profitability for an individual capitalist would come from selling his commodities that are going to be used in production to another capitalist. Yeah. Right. And so if you're producing for exchange, as you put it, you're actually producing for consumption, meaning you're there. That's consumption by the population. That means that primarily that the goods will be consumed by workers maybe but just consumed overall they won't go back into re to be, yeah. unless you can think of it the consumption as being a way to re to invest in the labor itself but not all of the consumption will be done yeah at that level there's this conspicuous consumption that goes yeah no it's well, well conspic the the veblen conspicuous consumption is i think mm-hmm. the main thing that lash is talking about so it's mm-hmm. it's just like oh you know like i'm gonna buy like a shirt instead of you know, and there's like, a, and then I'm going to buy a new shirt. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Lash thinks of it. This is a, like, that's, that was a horrible way of putting it. I apologize mm-hmm. to yeah. you Doug, and all listeners, but uh, <laughs> a new shirt when you don't need one. A shirt Before the first one has worn out. It's, it's not just for practical effect, but it's a status symbol. It's I have lots of, I have more shirts than I can wear. Yeah. Uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. On, I mean, on, on some level you always, the reason we have crises is because there's always an attempt to produce more than people can consume, at least in certain sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, but the purposeful increase in consumer potential through things like 
mass media, advertising, the culture industry, it characterizes a different cultural relationship to consumption, mm-hmm. which Lash says is tied up in a broader um, element of increased dependence by the working class on outside agencies rather than themselves. Mm-hmm. And so this could, could be the dependence of, I can't make my own shirt anymore. So this is something which, you know, maybe for a while you're producing shirts at home and you're also producing textiles in a factory. Um, and these things are, are coexisting. Um, mm-hmm. But at this point, most people, uh, you know, by 1920, by 1930, they are not producing things at home. It's, it's a final shift in where the production process occurs, mm-hmm. uh, which corresponds to increased levels of consumption and increased emphasis on conspicuous consumption and an increased generalized dependence on the market to produce that's, goods. That's just the way, if you're an American, it, this is no longer pragmatic production and consumption. Yeah, it's, right? it's, it's exactly. It's not, you're not producing for human needs. Uh, Mm -hmm. primarily you're producing for created needs. Um, and this is, this is something which corresponds really neatly with what you think of as some of the most basic repercussions of what Lash calls the culture of narcissism. If there's a, a failure to recognize the distinction between internally generated needs and external gratification, uh, you know, the, the, alienation from the labor process is so complete that you mistakenly think that by handing over your credit card, you've gotten, you've developed, you know, made a shirt for yourself, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's a mistaken omnipotence when in reality you're more dependent than ever. Right. Okay. So there's a bunch of things to unpack there. The first thing that I'll point out is, as I, as we're talking, I, I, I find it easy to understand the difference in economic terms, like yeah. the difference between production for the sake of production, the, the, the production, capitalist production for the sake of con- expanded uh, capitalist production. And especially if you, you throw in the idea that you're dealing with an entrepreneurial society in which the, the production isn't monopolized. As yeah. much, right? So you have people working at home to produce and sell their goods, or you have people who are starting small businesses, and it's it's um there's more competition. Uh, so you have uh, a lot of sales going on, a lot of commodity production going on, uh, it, for the sake of continuing the process of production. Yeah, and then, it's and then it's, and now you but with consumption you have with a consumer society you have a lot of production going on for the sake of uh, just producing short-term money games, which, and, and nothing will, no new investment will be able to come from, for instance, me purchasing a pet rock. Yeah. Right. Or, no, it might or be a great pet rock, you know, it's, if he's it's, got a great personality, he's wonderful. I, it makes right. me feel good about myself, but the, it doesn't uh, help me produce. I mean, I, I can't take all the pet rocks I own and create something new out of them or uh, star Wars action figures or, mm-hmm. TV sets, um, none of these things are going to go back into production, right? Yeah. So that's the difference in economic terms. But then um, you start talking about artificial needs yeah. and so inner is- needs as opposed to outer needs. And then I get confused because it seems as though um, 
we're assuming some sort of natural uh, state of consumption or need, and we like we know what people need. And I do want to live in a world where symbolic meaning has is part of our our yeah. world. Uh, uh, where you have you purchase something that isn't going to be directly used to like hoe your backyard, but instead you know to be used for your own enjoyment. Um, maybe that's just because I've been you know I've lived in this. I mean, I, th- I think that's totally culture. culture. Yeah, right. go ahead. A good example of this is like books, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to write all the books in the world. This is very difficult. Uh, right. I have only so many ideas uh, and only so much time. I want to be able to buy books. And read them for my enjoyment. Um, right. So you know, I, I don't think I think it's a mistake to assume that like consumption, it's that Lash is like a pure indictment of consumption. But it is right. true that in his the Freudian turn that he took first with Haven, you know, with culture of narcissism, and then it's it's apex in the minimal self. What he's doing is he's attempting to translate this political context and economic context into a psychological context. Right. Um, and in the psychological context, there's like a very basic idea, which is extremely complicated mm-hmm. is that American society has been told that you have tons of choices that they're limitless and also that they matter. And the mm-hmm. basic idea is that you can't both have choices that are limitless and have the matter. Right. This is like, you know, it took me like three times reading the book to just like realize like, oh, this is what he's saying. Um, now, let's let's go over that again, because I think that's an important point. So, first of all, the reality is that your choices aren't limitless. Yes. In fact. Right. Precisely. But if you perceive that they are, that means that there has to be a certain level of conspicuous consumption or consumption that's purely symbolic or that that's consumption that will not direct how things are going to be in the future. Yeah. Right. Um, not at least not directly. Um, but that, that, so you like, I think we get confused about this. Maybe this is I'm gonna, a diversion, but we talk, we, we focus a lot on media representation yes. these days. Yeah. Um, and you know, like the next Marvel movie is it, somehow important, uh, and worth evaluating in terms of how it represents ethnic minorities or, or, you know, the capitalist system or what have you, as if our consumption of that Marvel movie is going to set up the terms for our future behavior, yeah. which it might, but only in terms of more consumption. Yeah. Similar. No, exactly. Right? That's absolutely, that's absolutely what it is. You know, you, your choices in terms of consumption you know, they result in future choices only to the extent that they can, not in all consumption, obviously, but in, in a lot of consumption, a lot of conspicuous consumption, uh, only to the extent, sorry, my mom was calling me, uh, <laughs> only to the extent that, uh, sorry, I don't mean to laugh at you, but I, you're no, so no. young. <laughs> yeah. Totally justified. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but this is a great conversation, Elijah. You're, 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 your youth is only to your advantage. Oh, Keep thank going. You, thank you. Yeah, yeah. But you shouldn't fetishize it. This is what Lash says. Okay. Okay. All right. You, I have to aspire to be you. You can't aspire to be me. Well, um, I know it's sad for me, but yes, it's true. No, but it's happy for me. And it's very sad for you. But anyhow, <laughs> I think I think it's great. Anyway, in terms of consumption, um, this is a, a difference between 
um, making meaning, meaningful choices about the organization of work, right? Mm. What are we producing? And making, you know, not really meaningful choices about the organization of products. Do we paint this like water bottle like pink or whatever? Mm. Um, it's, it's a, you know, a generalized uh, like conformity of product where there's not that much difference between them, but there's the appearance of difference. There's the appearance of distinction that hides a far larger similarity uh, and which Lash thinks, and I agree with, people are on some level aware of and they feel cheated by this. Mm -hmm. um, and this is one reason why there's, you know, this acquisitive urge like, oh man, you know, buying this cup of coffee didn't make me happy. I gotta buy a different cup of coffee. I mean, I've been told that like this will improve my life. Um, so maybe it didn't work this time, but it'll work next time. Um, but the fundamental thing is that these are still, you know, alternative choices that we're pushed into rather than the ones we've made that haven't delivered still fundamentally don't alter the world. They don't um, result in a feeling of connection. They don't end our alienation from things that have been produced they don't allow us to recognize our own impact on the world. Right. Uh, instead, they lead the world to take on the appearance of a mirror of the self. Um, now, this is like another conceptual. You're like nodding your head. You're like, okay, this guy, what's he talking about? You well, know? no, I'm having some trouble with this because um, I understand the idea that we are cut off from our own impact on the world. We don't feel empowered to create history, mm -hmm. even though we're supposedly in a democracy, everything seems to be reduced to a kind of consumption. Even yeah. voting is, uh, you, you vote based you on your... You get red or you get blue. Yeah, um, you, you, you and get your demographic is going to determine that. You know. But if you think the world is a mirror of the self, if I, I don't know, I think like when I'm looking to the mirror, I know I can have an impact on how it, what happens in that mirror by just moving my hand around, you know? Yeah. Well, and this, but this is like the great thing. Um, you know, I think that's that's a really good point, and that's one reason why. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion on sublation in other areas in the left sphere about the significance of, you know, the new form of identity politics, which mm -hmm. I think is very linked to this. Um, so you're talking about the Marvel movie earlier, where mm -hmm. there's representation of minorities. I don't know. I don't really keep up with the Marvel movies, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, let's say there's representation of minorities. And this is thought of as important because what it's doing is it's showing, uh, you know, a representation that people can aspire to. But what Lash would say, what he would suggest is that in seeing a mirror of the self in the external world and not recognizing the distinction between the two as a result of this alienation, what people actually think is you see like, you know, let's say I see like uh, a, I don't know, some redhead like Jew up on screen. Mm -hmm. um, I look up there and I'm like, oh, that's me. Not, that's literally me. <laughs> literally me. Not, that's something to aspire to. And so right. you have a feeling that if that is literally you up there, then, you know, their success is your success. That by attaching yourself to this figure... Um, you can have an impact on the world, which you're denied in your everyday life, that the representation itself, the style is the substance and that mm -hmm. solutions, which actually have much deeper roots can be solved in the superficial way. 
Right. Um, yeah, this is now um, I'm reminded now of uh, Guy Debord. Yeah. The Society of Spectacle. Um, and Who Lash I, loves, by the way. Oh, does he? Yeah. He does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So let's walk through this again. Um, Cause I feel like we've left the therapeutic part behind and I want to get back to the therapeutic yeah. part. So, why I, do we need therapy when we get into this position and, and, or why is therapy so helpful to the ruling class in managing our alienation uh, when we're in this mode of enthrallment to a consumer spectacle? Yeah. So, I mean, I think what Lash would, I, I don't mean by therapeutic to suggest purely that like therapy addresses this. I think therapy mm -hmm. itself can be very helpful. Lash mm -hmm. obviously saw psychoanalysis as having a lot of power when used correctly. And mm -hmm. I agree with that. I think more the therapeutic mode is rather than instilling in workers um, and in people in society more broadly, what the authoritative mode does, a guilt instinct uh, you know, I've I've punched my boss because he's a jerk. So now I've I've, I've sinned in some way, and I have to mm -hmm. make amends for this. It instills normality, um, and deviations from normal are seen as problematic and requiring a, a, a means of being addressed. So within the workforce, uh, there's a shift from, you know, because of some immoral organization the boss is not paying us enough. We're doing work. We deserve to be paid well for this work. And so it's in some way an immoral sin. It's an ethical problem that the boss isn't paying us enough to a more individuated form of addressing conflict. Mm -hmm. Based on my current conditions and accounting for the ways in which I deviate from an average uh, you know, salary in terms of my needs, I am not receiving enough money for my present circumstances. Right. It's a shift from moral judgments about the ethical way in which society should be organized mm. to scientific judgments about how to adjust things, which are, you know, really up for tremendous debate in society with purely technical means. Right. And it gives the boss the opportunity to say, well, let's see how you're managing your money. Yeah. Right. No, that's a great example. And like, yeah. on the other hand, I don't, I don't want to suggest that this precludes opportunities for people in their own life to have agency. This is right. like another thing, which is very important to lash and which I think responds to one of my favorite quotes from Marx, which is in the 18th Grammaire, I believe, but you can correct me. Uh, well, you know, maybe men, men make their own history, but not in conditions of their choosing. I think that's mm -hmm. the thing for Mary. I think so too. But you know, I don't, I don't have all the quotes associated with the right text either. What but do you, but do you have me on? This is what I thought you had to offer. Me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I just, uh, you know, I, I'm not an expert. I just play one on TV or on YouTube. Well, you Anyhow, <laughs> thank you. But, but anyway, this is, this is something. So like on the one hand, obviously the conditions are something which people should affect, but they also have, uh, you know, a limited agency based on these conditions. And this is another thing the therapeutic method does. If what you're trying to do is associate yourself with a sense of normality, you lose ethical agency. You lose the ability to actually define the world. Um, and so what you're, you're, you know, what's instilled within people is a sense of victimhood. Oh my, man, you know, like, I'm promised this normality. I'm promised, let's say, a white picket fence and a pink house and a dog. 
and I can't get it. You know, I've been victimized. Something's, you know, something's not wrong with me because obviously I'm like, I feel like a pretty normal person, but I'm not being allowed to participate in this normality. Mm-hmm. Rather than, or you could decide there is something wrong, or you could decide there is something wrong with you. Um, you know, but either way, it removes the sense that society has been organized in this particular way and turns it to into an individuated problem, um, where you direct your anger at yourself and you say, Ah, oh, man, you know, they're just not delivering for me. I'm just, you know, I'm not normal, or in some way, I've been excluded from this normality when it doesn't exist to begin with. Right, um, right, right. Yeah. Okay. So l- let's talk a little bit about um, narcissism uh, as Lash understands it, because in the minimal self, which I think is what you brought up to me uh, yeah. when we were talking by, by text that, that you might want to talk about it, because that's where the idea of, of psychic survival uh, yeah, so- is. So it's right it's it? sort of a reframing of narcissism to prevent reactionaries from using it for their own purposes, mm-hmm. where, you know, people like read the culture of narcissism and they're like, oh man, everybody's a narcissist. This is such a problem. Mm-hmm. And Lash is seeking to establish in the minimal self, you know, this could just be reframed as an ethic of survivalism, mm-hmm. where the survival strategy that the average person has made, he thinks, is to jettison a sense of firm selfhood in favor of a minimal self, one that projects things onto the outside world because it's so hard to you know meet, meet your needs internally and within your own life because you don't have the agency to do so because of the way society is organized. Mm-hmm. So a great example of this is, uh, you know, in the, in the case of the, um, the impulse, a great example of survivalism is this like fantasy of survivable nuclear war, which is coming mm-hmm. up right now, um, where rather than recognizing that what is needed to be done is, is to avert the possibility of nuclear conflict, there's a perception that what needs to be done is to build a new society in the aftermath of nuclear conflict. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it feels more radical to just like not bomb one another than it does to make sure that there's some means of survival afterward. And in this way, this is an abstention of responsibility. You're saying the subsequent generation, because we have no hope for ourselves, will be able to pick up and do better than us. Uh, it offloads responsibility as a, you know, a collective responsibility over control of, of the present to people in the future. Um, mm-hmm. And this corresponds to a more general survivalism that pervades ordinary people. Uh, You know, you have a feeling of ironic disengagement from your emotions because, you know, like, you know, there's no reason for me to be upset. Like I have sort of enough food. I mean, maybe not, you know, it's not great. You know, I can sort of get to and from work, uh, except that gas prices are on the rise. you know, it, it's a it's a shift of, well, you know, this is just happening to everybody. It's not, you know, it's it's happening to me, but it's because it's happening to everybody, and I'm part of the world rather than like, hey, man, you know, like this sucks, right? Um, and I have to conduct some activity with my fellow people to address the fact that this is not a world that feels like there's a future. It's a world where the priority is immediate survival. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And and that's been going on for a lot longer than the current crisis. Which, uh, Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and this is one reason I think that uh, there's a very natural progression from Lash to Mark Fisher, where mm-hmm. Lash roots the culture of narcissism in not only the sense of dependency incurred by consumer capitalism and the therapeutic management style, but also in the collective abstention of any connections between past, present, and future in a sense of immediacy, which pervades the material world around us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's no, in the, the idea of Mark Fisher's idea that there's no alternative to neoliberal capitalism, that there's a feeling that nothing goes beyond, you know, this is one of the after effects of a general narcissistic culture and a minimal selfhood. This mm-hmm. present thing is the only thing that's going on. So I just have to focus on surviving it because there's no chance there's going to be a future. You look into the past and you don't find yourself there. So yeah. you have no connection to it. Exactly. And you look into the future and you're not there either. Right? Yes. Because so all you have is what is immediately in, in front of you. Abs- you, abs- might, you might be dead in the future. You might, you might be young enough to not see the future as the realm where you're dead. But eventually you will be. Um, so yeah, so you have no connection to the past and, and no connection to the future. And it seems like, I'm going to tell a little anecdote here. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I recall when I worked at Comcast and I was talking to a woman at the time who was around my age. Now I was, I was in my thirties at the time and, um, she was wondering if it was legal for her to just get television from the air just to get broadcast TV. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Like I said, yeah, no, you can get an antenna or, you know, a digital antenna and there's broadcast television. You remember, you remember broadcast television, the major networks. And she's like, "Uh, I'm not sure. I, you know, what, what was that? (laughs) It's like, and I realized this this was not a young person who had never experienced it. This is someone who had grown up with network TV, who had forgotten it. Yeah. It was odd. It was a very odd moment. Yeah. And, and so there's, I mean, and I think one thing I never grew up with like broadcast television. We do not have a TV in my house. Right, Uh, right, right. So, um, you know, but there's one thing which is true, which is that the past does reassert itself in a, you know, this very peculiar way, which is in oversight of like, you know, you, you get these like video compilations online. Young people watch this sometimes. Mm -hmm. like ads from the 1950s and right. this is something people consume for fun of course it's yeah. like but instead of recognizing oh you know this is our common life this is how americans lived you know 70 years ago it's like wow look at how fantastical this is look at this pretty dress she's wearing uh i can't believe this guy doesn't know how to make a cup of coffee for himself they're so excited about instant <laughs> coffee like right right it's, it's a disconnect even from what remains of our shared cultural heritage and mm-hmm. this linked to a feeling that the future doesn't belong to us even more than that we won't be there there's no point in being there because it's not ours right um, so I, and that's ultimately because the present doesn't belong to you either absolutely it's mm-hmm. That's absolutely it. So now what we have in the narrative of Lash's work, we have first social control is ongoing. There's a generalized regulation of life corresponding 
to the rise of large organizations and consumer capitalism. Mm-hmm. Now we have a culture of narcissism, a sense of minimal selfhood, uh, and a, a disconnect between the cultural past, the cultural present, and the cultural future. And from here is where a lot of people associate Lash's more conservative turn. Mm-hmm. Um, so think of the true and only heaven or revolt of the elites or women in the common life. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my mind, I think one thing which reading the whole of Lash's you know, discography has shown me <laughs> is uh, how natural of an evolution this is and how it's not like just some reactionary response. It's organized in his feeling that the left is unable to organize itself amidst the culture of narcissism and that what is needed to overcome the problems engendered by corporate capitalism, Mm -hmm. the problems of the culture of narcissism is a restoration of a sense of a common life and of continuities between the past, the present and the future. And this is why he has a turn towards populism, a turn against, you know, elites who he thinks are perpetuating this type of, uh, you you know, this, the culture of narcissism and corporate control or whatever. Um, And why he has a turn also back towards religion, which he says, you know, roots people in a common life, basically. So for him, it's even like an instrumental thing. Um, Yeah. I I think once you think of religion as instrumental, you don't really have a path back to religion. You can't. Yeah. I mean, What's really funny is he's like constantly talking about how psychoanalysis does the same thing as religion, which is that it offers the chance of recognizing your limitations and simultaneously transcending them. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, man, you know, wonder, no wonder this guy became a Calvinist late in life. Right. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) such an odd conception of, of what religion is there for. Um, Right. Mm -hmm. Right. No. Yeah. That's not, not what every religion is there for by any means. No, exactly. Um, um, yeah. Okay. So let, let's walk through this again. So the, the, but he had a critique of populism as well as populism. Right. Yeah. So he, he saw it as a limited response to the problem yes. of narcissism, one that ultimately wouldn't overcome it. Right. Yeah. And yet he, it was what the best of the worst or something. Yeah. I mean, like he constantly talks about this. I mean, this is the thing a lot of people think is like people think Lash in his late life harkens back to like some golden age. He's like, it used to be a golden age, but what he's constantly saying is this hilarious concept, which is, you know, the horrors of the present are so bad that the horrors of the past look great at comparison. So he's Mm -hmm. like every single period of human life has been awful. We have to, work to transform unmanageable neurosis into ordinary misery. And he thinks right. that populism did this um, in okay. a limited sense. Um, or just generally a critique of progress and an acceptance of human limits. Um, right. Okay. So now I want to, I want to talk about that because there seems to be a contradiction between the, the, his, his desire for people to, be able to collectively act to create a future and there yeah. and therefore change society mm-hmm. and in a sense make some progress towards let's say uh, equity and liberty and fraternity or 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 social society yeah and um and 
this idea that we have to accept that progress is impossible that 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 i mean it seems to me like he would been would have been better off to say that our conception of progress uh is far too hemmed in by the productive capacities we have now yeah. and uh, you know the social relationships behind those and that progress now wouldn't be shouldn't be measured in the number of widgets we produce per each yeah. year i mean this is this is kind of basically what he suggests he's suggesting yeah. you know and like you can tell this in the title of the true and only heaven progress and its mm. critics it's mm. an attempt to distinguish material progress which we equate with societal progress with true progress which is you know this much slower moral thing uh in his mm. mind um and you know this is not like really a materialist outlook uh this is a completely idealistic one. And so it runs into a number of problems that many different idealistic outlooks look, you know, have, which is relativism and, you know, all of these issues. Mm -hmm. uh, but his basic premise is that there's an impasse in discussions based around the fact that we no longer understand what true happiness and true progress is that you have people arguing over the best way to produce widgets rather than the significance of producing widgets. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about this in The Minimal Self, in True Only Heaven, in Culture of Narcissism, where there's a number of places that he feels that the present political order is just debating the wrong questions, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and he has one of his most interesting elements of this. This is a little bit of a digression, but I promise to come back. Yeah. Is... Um, he like divides up political life into the party of the ego, the party of the superego and the party of Narcissus. And he's like, forget Democrats, Republicans, socialists, you know, fascists, whatever. No, everybody's organizing themselves on the basis of which component of the personality they feel will best address this impasse. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is a very good example of the kind of out of the box thinking, which showcases why it's still so hard to figure out, especially the late lashes, political leanings. Uh, mm. He simultaneously seems, if you read him, to the left and to the right of most people. Um, mm. And it's because what he's committed to is a conception of human politics premised around really different questions than the ones we're used to debating. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the party of of the ego, which, by the way, is the one I think I would be most naturally drawn to. Yeah. Um, uh, is that the party that he would align himself with, or does he think that's a mistake? Just all three I, conceptions are. I mean, uh, I think to like some extent. I mean, with a Freud is not my specialty, which is mm -hmm. really biting me because this is like all I've been reading for the past like three weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, he thinks that the party of the ego is basically it's linked to like sort of an adaptability feeling in politics. So oh. he would, most liberals in this, where it's about creating an adaptable personality with an ego that unconsciously is able to react to the world. Um, whereas the superego, which he identifies with Daniel Bell, mm -hmm. uh, among other people, is about rigidly shaping your way into the world and a, a reassertion of this sort of acquisitive personality type of the, you know, early or the, the late 19th century rather um, mm. that, you know, ends the regression of narcissism and makes you able to go back on the path of 
just like normal socialism um, it, or, you know, among other things. And then he says there's also the party of uh, Narcissus, which is the one he thinks is dominant in American life and is most critical of, uh, which says, you know, to hell with it. We're just going to smother these contradictions into a big ball, paper it over and try to live our lives that way. Um, right. Is that the uh, kind of aligned with the pro- the party, the ego, only like is the party of the ego gone awry or gone wrong or? I mean, these are like, these are all, they all kind of run into each other, um, mm. which is the reason why I don't think it's a really effective thing to ground, you know, ground your politics in mm. different parts of a personality that are also all in every person. Um mm-hmm. The, the party of uh, Narcissus as compared to the party of the ego, it's the difference between attempting to sort of unleash the id and keep it, you know, at least nominally constrained by a particular moral ideal. Um, he has a very unique conception of the superego, which I don't want to get into right now because okay. my notes are not super like detailed on this yet mm-hmm. uh they're in the process mm-hmm. but the basic element that i want to share with you and with any listeners is uh this is just emblematic of how lash thinks about politics in a way that's very very different from traditional political divides mm-hmm. so lash has had a you know a resurgence a comeback uh, over the last i don't know let's say uh Six years, yeah, you know, uh, since the election of Trump, um, particularly, but I think he might have been rising up even before then. Um, and he has been instrumentalized, I think, primarily by the right, yeah, um, and also by people on the left who uh were maybe adjacent to or aligning themselves with the Bernie Sanders campaign in America, maybe Corbyn in, in the UK. Um, and, but, but primarily in America who wanted to uh, have a theoretical tool by which to bludgeon the identity politics, Democrats who were coming after Sanders for being a white man and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but they also ended up, I think, embracing Lash as a conservative, even people who are on the left. Yes. Um, uh, often enough, like uh, just to be like to to uh, come clean. I think that our our own the person that we published at Zero, Angela Nagel, ended up sort of embracing Lash as a kind of conservative ultimately. Yeah. Um, uh, although, you know, I'd be glad to debate her about that at some time if, you know, be corrected. Um but uh, do, you, do you, you're you're young enough that you're kind of coming to this. I imagine six years ago you were fairly young. Six years uh, ago know. I was fairly young. I was. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to tell me, but, I, but I'm, I'm going to say I'm going to say were you because I can't count. You know, you're 15. Six years ago, maybe. Yeah, I was. I was 15. Yeah. Um. So, like, you probably weren't that aware of Lash or all these these debates at that time. I'm no. guessing. I started meeting him over. Uh, quarantine like basically two years yeah. ago now but yeah. i was yeah. aware of the bernie sanders campaign and that's the well, reason yeah yeah so um so the reason i i just wonder from your perspective someone's coming to this uh, relatively fresh and looking back on it um do you feel as though lash is still 
have something to to offer us now that we're out of that Sanders moment. Now that yeah. we're we're we no longer have a, a, a some sort of battle raging within the Democratic Party, but rather we're faced with uh, a task which I think we should have been uh, faced with all along, which is building. Uh, a, a kind of left that's sufficient to at least begin to overcome the cultural and political and economic problems of the present. Um, do you think Lash is still uh, can, can get out from under the the ways in which he's been instrumentalized over the last six years? I do. I mean, otherwise I would not be studying him. Um, right. And I think that a great example of this is in World of Nations. He has this essay called Populism, Socialism, and McGovernism. Mm-hmm. And this is an essay which coincides very neatly with some of the challenges the left is having with Bernie Sanders now, uh, which is what happens, you know, what is the use of a figure aligned with your form of politics attempting to take control of the Democratic Party? This is something which succeeded in the case of McGovern for a very short period of time and which did not succeed with Bernie. And Lash's contention is that it was a mistaken strategy to begin with. And the reason why, obviously, he supported McGovern at the time Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that I think most people on the left, uh, if they're like normal, you know, support Bernie Sanders in general. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also makes clear that you shouldn't expect this to be a means of securing your own power. You can't just like lodge onto an existing power structure, like some form of parasite, and then like wiggle in like a brain worm and move this thing in a different direction. You can use it for a limited number of political purposes, such as generating your own movement and opening up forces in American life, which current politics can't address. But ultimately what you need to do is you need to create a viable alternative vision of society and implement means to slowly make your way there. And I think that this is something which, say, a third run of Bernie wouldn't do mm-hmm. because what it's doing is it's attempting to move the Democratic Party, which is an organization with its own priorities, which are not those of the left, mm-hmm. in a way that it won't go. And it won't go that way because what you're doing is, is you're trying to steer something in a direction without any, you know, harness, without any support. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. What Lash has to offer is, I think, a twofold lesson. One, no matter how disheartening it feels, you have to recognize that in some way you're responsible for your own life. And mm-hmm. we have the ability through that responsibility, through that agency, to make connections that can enable us to shape our social life. And two, you have to utilize that agency to create a foundation and alternatives that, you know, capitalist society can unaffix itself from its current moorings and attach to in a way that's better and offers a complete and holistic vision of what life should be. Listen, we've just been talking for about 55 minutes. Um, I think this is a perfect spot to end our first conversation but Elijah, I want to have you back. Uh, I always enjoy talking to people who are around my kids' age, um, which is uh, in your case. You're you're just in between Simon 
and and uh, Emma. That's, so like I have four kids. So anyway, you're you would be my fifth middle. Anyway, you're not. But the point is, <laughs> but um, I enjoyed talking to you very much, and I and and it makes me feel hopeful, really, about the future of the left. That so long as you're feeling hopeful rather than optimistic. Keep it up. I'm, okay, I'm, I'm hopeful but not optimistic. I don't feel optimistic. Intellectually, I'm pessimistic, but I'm I'm emotionally optimistic, uh, or at least hopeful. And uh, so, thanks a lot for coming on. And uh, I'm going to end the recording here.